As Randy just said, I spoke about the vineyard analogy in John 15 several months ago. And due to time constraints, I just didn't have time to finish the lesson. This morning, we're going to finish that vineyard analogy. To understand the starting point where we're beginning today, we need to briefly review, because if you were here then, you've forgotten a lot. And if you weren't here, you, you don't have anything to forget. It was the night before Jesus died on the cross. He had spent the evening with his disciples in the upper room celebrating their beloved Passover. He had also instituted the Lord's Supper. He had watched them argue over the chief seats in his impending kingdom, and he washed their feet to demonstrate a superior way of leadership by service rather than authority and power. Jesus knew that in a few hours, his disciples would witness his betrayal, his arrest, his mock trials, his scourging, and finally the visceral brutality of the crucifixion. He knew his apparent annihilation would leave them confused and devastated and in the brink of capitulation to Satan's wishes. He also knew that they would need power from on high during several key stages of their lives. For the next three days while he was in the tomb and they were trying to wonder what happened. And then the 40 days after that until he ascended back to the Father. And then the 10 days after that, until the Spirit came with power upon them in ways they couldn't imagine at that time. And then throughout the rest of their lives, as they sought to fulfill Christ's mission on earth amidst persecution, rejection, and in most cases for the apostles, execution for the cause of Christ. How would they be able to stand up and hold up from one critical moment to the next to fulfill their mission until they too left the earth. To solve this problem, Jesus gave them one last glorious message prior to his crucifixion. Truly profound words for critical times. I was going to read the, the first five verses. I, I didn't realize it was going to be the, the scripture reading this morning, so hopefully you remember what was said. I'm gonna pick up in just a moment with the very next verse. But before we do that, I want to review quickly what we talked about last time in terms of that analogy. So to review, here is the basic analogy. First, Jesus compared himself to a very special grapevine. He was not merely a wonderful vine. He was truly the only true vine. Secondly, Jesus compared himself, uh, compared his father to the owner or gardener of the vineyard. You see, during the growing season, the gardener took care of the soil by way of water and removing weeds and giving nutrition to the soil. He also took care of the vine itself to make its branches as fruitful as possible by removing and burning the fruitless branches. And then during the off season, he prepared the vine for even greater production the next growing season by pruning the fruit-bearing branches. And thirdly, Jesus compared his disciples to grapevine branches that the gardener cared for during the grape-producing season and then pruned during the off-season. And that brings us to our text today. We pick up the reading in verse 6 of John chapter 15. 
It won't be on the screen. Uh, I hope that if you have a Bible or you have the Bible on your phone, that you'll turn to it. There's even a Bible in the pew, but if not, just listen. This is the rest of that famous passage, beginning in verse 6. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love one another. This text raises at least three questions that I want us to address this morning. The first question is, what do the grapes represent in this analogy? We can step back for a second and do a little logic here. Since branches represent every person who submits to Jesus, and those who don't submit to Jesus are not in this analogy, then we can conclude that the grapes do not represent people. Grapes naturally develop from branches connected to a healthy and well-nourished vine. In other words, what sprouts from each branch does not emerge because the branch exerts itself mightily. Each branch simply remains attached to the vine. And as a result, each branch automatically does what God intended it to do. That's important to remember as we continue. So, back to the question, what do these grapes represent? Well, the Apostle Paul explained it very simply using a similar agrarian analogy. It's a great passage. We're very familiar with it, but turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to begin reading with verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. What he's saying basically here is these grapes are fruit of the vine, if you will, that we bear because we remain attached to Jesus the vine. They are the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, various spiritual attributes needed to maneuver through each critical moment of our lives. Paul makes it clear, however, that we do not produce these attributes on our own, but if we remain in the vine, they will naturally develop. He even makes it clear by his word choice. He talks about acts of the flesh. Those are things we do, actions, versus fruit, not ours, fruit of the Spirit. In other words, Jesus knew that his disciples would need these attributes in, in abundance if they were to withstand the pressures that they would face throughout the rest of their lives and ministry. This same principle still holds true today. Consequently, we need to stop trying to develop these attributes all on our own, which we will never be able to do, and instead cling to Jesus and let the Spirit put those in us as we live for him. Question two, how do we allow Christ to produce his fruit in us? Well, the quick answer back in verse five is to remain in Christ. As he said in verse five, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. That wasn't command, you will bear much fruit. That was simply a statement of fact. If you remain in me, you produce fruit. But what must we do to remain in Christ? In the previous lesson from this text, we talked about two ways that we can remain in Christ. Ironically, neither of the two is in the text. He does mention one way in the text, but without the first two that we talked about last time, you cannot do the one that's in the text. So let's quickly review the ones in the that we mentioned last time, and then come to the one in the text, and that'll give us three great ways to make sure that we remain in Christ. The first way is to absorb the Word of God. Not just read it. We've got to, to read it, think about it, dwell on it, pray about it, absorb it. In our busy lives, we often fail to appreciate just how important it is to read God's heart to us. I decided to just go back and see what the Bible had to say about just simply reading the Word. And I'm not going to read all the verses, just the, the unique phrase in each of those which gets to the point. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 25, Peter wrote, The Word of the Lord endures forever, meaning it's always relevant. For your great-great-grandparents, it was relevant. For us, it's relevant. If God allows this world to continue 500 years from now, our descendants 500 years from now, it will still be relevant. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, the word of God is indeed at work in you who believe. When we read the word and take it to heart, it becomes alive in us. Another verse that I found fascinating, Colossians 3.16, one that we've heard many times if you're, if you're past 40 anyway. Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. He says, as you teach and admonish one another, 
you ha- it's based on the word of God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. And how is this wisdom from the word of God supposed to be manifested? Through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. As we sing to one another, it's not just can we sing in four-part harmony? As great as that is, the idea is our singing, we're singing to one another, we're teaching, we're admonishing, because we have a basis of the word in us from which to sing. Or Ephesians 6, verse 17. After this, this passage about putting, putting, on this, <clears throat> pardon me, putting on the spiritual armor of God, and he mentions one defensive piece of equipment after another, and the, at the very end he says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The only offensive tool we have against Satan is the Word of God. That makes it important that we know it. And finally, probably the, the one that is both uh, visual and the most powerful verse, Hebrews 4 and verse 12, the Word of God is active and alive. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. The word can chop us up, sometimes for our good, sometimes for our tempering, sometimes if we're not living right, it can chop us up in very bad ways. In other words, what, what we learn about the word of God is that without deliberate and habitual devotion to the word of God, no one can truly remain in Christ very long. That's a sobering thought. The second one is pouring our, out our hearts to God in prayer. In our hectic lives, it's so busy to get up and tend to pray, but just get busy with everything that's going on. We run, run, run all day long, and by the time it's nighttime, we're too tired, and we go to bed and we intend to pray and we fall right to sleep. I understand that principle. I've done that too many times in my life. But I looked at some passages about prayer too. The psalmist said in Psalm 17 and verse 6, I call on you, my God. Why? For you will answer me. Or Matthew 26, 41, which occurred just a few hours after our text. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said to his apostles after they couldn't stay awake, watch and pray so you'll not fall into temptation. Now, in the immediate context, he was saying to them, watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation at this critical moment. But the principle of that verse is is powerful still today. If we want to stay away from temptation, if we want to stay close to the Lord, we've got to watch and pray. And then uh, Romans 12 and verse 12, be faithful in prayer. Philippians 4, 6 is another verse that we've heard many times. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And finally, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 16, pray continually, or as the King James says, pray without ceasing. In other words, he's saying if you really want to stay close to, to, to the Lord, you've got to have constant communication from your heart to his. Those two are prerequisites And now in our text today, it's if Jesus assumes that his apostles would already know those, and he goes straight to the third one, which in many ways is the hardest of the three to do, and yet in some ways it's also the most rewarding of the three to do. If you look in John 15, I'm going to read again verses 9 and 10. He said, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. 
If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. He starts by saying, remain in my love. That's just another way of saying, remain in me. He says, you want to remain in me? Here's one great way. Do what I tell you to do. Obedience. It's not a word we like to hear in our society today, but it is an important word that we must discuss. And that obedience has got to be based on knowing God's will, that's reading, and having a close understanding with God about our heart, and that's prayer. Now, before we go on to the third question, perhaps we should illustrate what the fruit of the Spirit does for us. Let me illustrate this with two examples. The first one is the life of two of the apostles, Peter and John. You might want to turn to, to Acts chapter 3, actually at the end of chapter 2. I've gone back and forth about this. It's a lengthy passage, whether to read it or try to summarize it. But stories are easy to follow, and I decided we need to just listen to this story in, in the book of Acts. I'm going to begin reading with verse 42 of chapter 2. This is the glorious heyday in the beginning, where everything was wonderful. And Acts 2, a very familiar passage, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. After the apostles had witnessed the, the ultimate crucifixion of Jesus and then wondered what's going to happen for three days while he was in the tomb and then still not understanding as Jesus left the earth, now, after the day of Pentecost, they are riding high, and things seem so great. Finally, we're in the great part, and now God is going to bless us forever and ever, I'm sure they thought. And it continues, because as you go into chapter 3, then you have a story soon after this time, or maybe during this time. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame for birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he, had put, he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at them, as did John. Then J Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said to them, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. So they had this great opportunity to shower upon somebody God's blessing. And then, right after that, they had the opportunity for another blessing. Verse 11, while the men held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came run, running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. 
When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? And then he goes into this sermon through the rest of the chapter. He's not finished. But oh, what a glorious moment. They've had a moment to heal, and now they've had a, a moment for everybody wants to hear the word of God. How much better could it get than that? But then as we get to chapter 4, the wheels fall off. In chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, while he's still preaching, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them into jail until the next day. They go from basking in the glory of God to being in prison and wondering if this is the last day of their lives. How are they going to deal with that? How indeed? How do you think Peter and John got through that evening? Well, because of the spirit within them, they had the love of Jesus. They had their joy in Christ. They had the peace of Christ living within them, calming them. They had the faithfulness of Jesus as an example for them. And among other things, they had self or probably better God control. And those are just some of the fruits of the spirit listed in Galatians chapter 5. And so it should not surprise us that the next morning, instead of having worn down their fingernails to nubs, we read, beginning in verse 5, The next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family, the very ones who had decided that Jesus must die. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people, of the elders and of the people, if you are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Then down verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again, again, in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges." As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now, that's power and conviction because they had a power in them far beyond their own ability. And finally, let's illustrate what the Spirit can do through us today. Go back to John chapter 15. 
In John chapter 15, verses 7 and 8 say, If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Jesus was talking to his apostles, and he said to them, If you ask for anything in my name and according to my will, I will do it. Scholars go back and forth about, was that really just for the apostles and not so much for us? I don't know. But I do know that there's more to that than just saying it's just the apostles. There is a whole lot that we have not yet touched in terms of what God can and will do for us if we ask in faith according to his will. Thus, we turn now to John chapter 15 and verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Again, he's talking to the apostles. But he said, you I designed for spiritual fruit. And we do know that we're all designed for spiritual fruit. And God expects us to cling to him, to the vine. And automatically the spirit will slowly over time begin to build up his spiritual fruit in our lives. And that brings us now to question three that the text raises. And that is, what if we refuse the Spirit's fruit? I'm about to get into an area where we today don't like to go, and that's in the negative. But the Bible has too much of that. We need to be reminded of that. And so there are at least three things that Jesus said to us about this if we refuse. In verse 5, he basically said, if we refuse the Spirit's fruit, we will become spiritually void. That's not the words he uses, but he said, if you remain in me... And I and you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You say, wait a minute, I've done a lot of things. I've exerted myself. I've done all sorts of things. But if it's not because you're tied to the Lord and the Spirit's working through you, it's got ulterior motives in it. And eventually it will crumble. Secondly, in verse 12, he says, if you refuse the Spirit's fruit, You'll be, become unable to love God's people. What in the world was he talking about there? In verse 12, he said, My command is this, love each other as I've loved you. And I thought about that in the context. Why would he be so concerned with his apostles that they loved one another? Have you ever noticed every time in history when a great leader dies, there's a lot of fighting, infighting, and usually... The kingdom is divided into several parts because they can't get along. Jesus knew if his kingdom divided, it would not stand. And so he's telling his apostles, when you go out, keep all of the jealousies and the envies and all those things out. Love one another. And today, we still need to be loving one another. Even though we, we may get our feelings hurt sometimes, we need to love one another. And where do we get such love? from the Spirit. Finally, in verse 6, he says, if you do not, if you refuse the Spirit's fruit, you'll be eternally condemned. In verse 6, he said, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. That's about as vivid as imagery as I want to think about. 
So what do we do with all this? Jesus chose to begin his last verbal teaching moment with the twelve prior to the cross by sharing this analogy of the vineyard. He knew that his disciples would never be strong enough on their own to withstand the things they would have to endure. Jesus also knows that we cannot truly be his disciples and meet up to every critical moment in our lives on our own. Now, unfortunately, we sometimes focus on things that do not require a deep attachment to Jesus. Church attendance, whether it's every Sunday morning or every time the doors are open, neither one of those requires a close adherence to Jesus. It can, but it doesn't have to be. You could just decide, I'm a, I'm, this is my habit. Being attentive to the right five acts of worship doesn't require an intimate relationship with Jesus. It can, but it doesn't have to. You can just go through the motions and say, I'm doing the right things here. Having our name and contact information on our online directory is nice, but it has nothing to do with whether or not we are truly, deeply rooted in Christ. And I'm about to, to attack a sacred cow now. Even participation in VBS does not require you to be deeply rooted in Christ. It should, but it doesn't by itself. You see, when we are deeply rooted in Christ, all the things we just talked about take on a special meaning, but only because we are in Christ. In addition, when we abide in Christ, our lives are filled increasingly more with the fruit of the Spirit. And there's so much more to possessing the fruit of the Spirit than we've talked about. And so I want to finish with one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. It's found in 2 Peter chapter 1. It's about eight verses that I first want to read, and then we're going to highlight just two points from this. Peter wrote, His divine power has given us everything that we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. And now the point I want you to, to get from all of that. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the takeaway for this. When we allow the Spirit to produce His fruit within us, two special things occur. First, in verse 10, we will never fall away from Christ in this life. I heard so many sermons growing up about, yes, you can fall away, and we forgot to say that you don't have to. If we stay firmly rooted in Christ, we will never fall away. It says it right there in verse 10. 
Paul said it also in Romans 8. Listen to this glorious passage. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that a marvelous thought? And the second thing he says is found in verse 11. He says basically that our reservation in heaven is confirmed. Or as John wrote near the end of his first epistle, 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life both now and forever. That's why it's so important to remain and to abide in Christ. So, whether you are struggling with forgiving others because of the hurts you feel they flung against you, or because you stay discouraged because you can't seem to convince anybody to turn to Jesus, or you face persecutions because of your faith and life applications from a growing secular country, or because someday you may have to watch with deep sadness the confiscation of all the church property by politicians who want to do away with Christianity in this country. Instead of fomenting about all those things and worrying about them, what he says here is focus on rooting more deeply in Christ each passing day by consistently reading God's Word with wonder and expectation, by faithfully praying to God from your heart, and doing what he says in his word every day, regardless of the cost that the government or some of your friends or some of your brothers and sisters in Christ or some of your family may exact on you if you don't go along with what they want. So we close with this statement. Do you need to respond to the invitation this morning because you've never surrendered to Jesus through faith and baptism? or because you've allowed Satan to pull you away from the vine and you're slowly or quickly dying and you need to be grafted back in. If you need to come to Jesus today, come as we stand and sing.